One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. All right, in case you missed it, you can now listen to Pod Save America ad-free by joining Crooked Subscription Friends of the Pod. And with fewer ads in your day, you'll have more time to enjoy other exclusive-to-subscription perks like bonus content feed featuring our chaotic and funny new show, Terminally Online, opportunities to chat directly with John, Tommy, and myself on Discord, uh, which is like a, a just a fun Slack channel. It's like a nicer Twitter. And we have a news feed with the latest headlines informing all of our shows, plus real-time commentary from us and other Crooked staffers. Signing up to the Best Friends tier is also the easiest way to stay involved in Vote Save America's on-the-ground organizing with $10 of your subscription going directly towards supporting and expanding those efforts. So you can ditch ads, save democracy. It's a win-win. Head to crooked.com slash friends and sign up today. Okay, you can create these things. Will you be able to find an audience? And if not, then, you know, where is this going? And in so doing, are you maybe cutting a lot of people out of jobs and out of a national or an international conversation that usually takes place in art, where we determine what good and evil are, where we determine Mm. what right and wrong is? You know, when those are isolated, we aren't actually having a collective conversation about values, about history, about the future, about romance, about sex, anything, right? And so we lose out on that. You know, when you aren't sharing those things with other people, you might be the AI version of Emily Dickinson. You might be that person who has like a ton of great material just hiding somewhere on your hard drive. But it will be very lonely. I'm John Favreau. Welcome to Offline. Hey, everyone. My guest this week is Wired contributor, science fiction author, and futurist Madeline Ashby. For these next two episodes, we'll be talking about the unprecedented dual strike that has brought Hollywood to a standstill. Next week, straight off the picket line, I'll be joined in studio by comedian and WGA negotiator Adam Conover to give us a behind-the-scenes look into the negotiations. But before we get into the details of the strike, I wanted to step back and spend some time talking about the broader technological trends that led the entertainment industry to what certainly feels like an inflection point. Trends that began when Netflix launched the bingeable House of Cards in 2013 and continue today with labor negotiations over artificial intelligence. Madeline just wrote a phenomenal piece in Wired that covers this era and what might come next. It's called Hollywood's Future Belongs to People, Not Machines, and it's the result of months of reporting and interviews with dozens of writers, producers, and executives about the future of entertainment. It's a comprehensive, insightful look into the technology, finances, and greed that have completely changed the way Hollywood does business. The two of us talk about how we arrived at this moment, 
what the Silicon Valley move fast and break things ethos has done to Hollywood, what AI-generated entertainment might look like from an audience perspective, and what's lost for consumers and creators when more art is created by machines and algorithms. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope it gives you a deeper look at what's at stake in these negotiations. As always, if you have comments, questions, or concerns, please email us at offlineatcricket.com and stick around after my interview with Madeline. Max joins me to offer his thoughts on the parallels between the transformation of entertainment and journalism, how AI is coming for the latter, and this week's bizarre and extremely online debate, the pit socialists against bananas. Here's Madeline Ashby. Madeline Ashby, welcome to Offline. Uh, thank you for having me. So ever since the writers went on strike, I've been wanting to have a larger conversation about all the ways uh, technology is transforming entertainment. And then I came across your fantastic piece in Wired, uh, which I keep sending to people because I loved it so much. I know you did a lot of the reporting earlier this spring, and you end up concluding this. Quote, the unbundling of the American storytelling machine has become the unbundling of the American story. What was once a roaring engine of commerce and a siren of soft power is now as fractured as the audience consuming its products. Can you walk us through the unbundling of the American storytelling machine? When did it start? What caused it? And uh, how did we get here? Whew. That is a big question. I feel as though you've asked me to summarize somebody's doctoral dissertation. I'm almost certain <laughs> that someone has gotten a PhD in this. And if you have and you are listening or watching us right now, I really apologize because I'm sure that you have done more research. So the first, the idea of unbundling or bundling and unbundling comes from former Netscape CEO, Jim Barksdale. And Barksdale said that there are two ways in this in America to make money. There are two ways in this world to make money. One is bundling and one is unbundling. And by bundling, he meant like creating value from services that are tied together, like product offerings and services that are tied together. Um, you know, the cruise line doesn't make any money if they don't sell food. The, you know, you have to, you have to bundle these things together. And so, for example, newspapers used to be bundled with personals ads and classifieds ads, and that was how they got revenue while also providing service and value for money in terms of providing news and, and so on. Then came Craigslist and then came online dating, and that sort of unbundled those things. So those relationships unraveled. Uh, I would say that with the advent of a lot of dis digital technologies and with the sort of broadening of digital and technical literacy amongst viewers and consumers and, and everybody. Um, some of the, the way that cultural production, especially at the film and television level um, happens has been similarly unbundled. So when Netflix came along and when other streamers came along, they did things in a very different way and they untied some of the relationships that were fundamental to how film and TV got made in America, including taking away, for example, ads. Now, you might think that that's great. And in fact, for a lot of people, it really was like uh, everybody uh, likes watching things without ads. Um, that was one of the virtues of, you know, allegedly some types of cable television. But when you don't do that, that one of the things that was brought up to me is that you aren't, one, you don't have a stable revenue stream. Two, you mm. aren't writing to dramatic beats in the same way. And 
three, the a lot of the audience or knowledge about the audience or writing to the audience kind of goes away. And so a lot of how television got written, whether it's big writers rooms now becoming mini rooms or whether it's uh, one executive who isn't sharing a lot of the information about audience metrics and so on, uh, like at Netflix, that's sort of very different from the way that things used to be done. And there hasn't really been training to compensate for that. On the flip side, in that fracturing of the American story, what we've seen is sort of a, a fracturing of audiences. So once upon a time, it used to be a big deal that the Beatles went on Ed Sullivan. Suddenly that was a landmark moment. People have a, a have an idea of, um, for example, like watching the moon landings or watching something as a shared experience or everybody, everybody saw this thing. That doesn't exist anymore. And so the that collective viewing experience isn't there any longer. And so we don't share in the same common experiences as we used to. And it's why you'll see this sudden fascination with trends or hashtags on Twitter or things that suddenly everybody knows when in fact everybody is just the people whose you know customer profile matches yours and you feel like it's yeah. everybody and it's not. So there's, uh, I asked a big question and there's, uh, you offered a lot there and I wanna almost break them out into a couple different areas um, and start with sort of the business model of all this. Mm. Uh, so it's interesting that you mentioned um, this is similar to what happened in, in journalism and in media, because part of what happened is when you bought a newspaper, there were the ads in there and that helps finance the, uh, finance the whole operation. But also there was, you know, you got sports, you got local news, you got weather, you got all kinds of stuff. And so you might have an interest in one topic, but you got a whole bunch of other topics. Mm -hmm. And similarly, in the cable era, you bought a cable package and you got a whole bunch of channels and some of the channels you wanted and some of the channels you might not have wanted, but they were all there in the cable package. And then in the streaming era, now you can sort of pick and choose. And you also mentioned how um, the transition from the cable era to the streaming era brings something of a Silicon Valley startup ethos to Hollywood. What has that done to the business model of entertainment? So previously during the broadcast and cable eras or when broadcast and cable were more uh, how people accessed entertainment and information, uh, they moved at a, at a different pace. They moved weekly, episodes dropped weekly, there were ad breaks. So even down to how stories are told, they were written to sort of get to ad breaks. That's one of the things that Javier Griot-Marx watched talked to me about in our interview was that once upon a time, we knew how to pace stories because they were mm -hmm. written to ad breaks and those were cliffhangers and that's how that worked. And that itself was taken from Saturday morning serials in the 1930s, the ones, the same ones that inspired Indiana Jones, was that at the end, there was a cliffhanger. That's why you came back the next week. And the same with how television episodes and films were written. Uh, so one, changes story structure. Two, there were 22 episode seasons that dropped weekly. And over time, that gave every creative team involved with the series a lot more time to hone their craft and to develop a create like a shorthand with their fellow creatives that isn't there any longer because now the streaming production model is to essentially abandon a litter of episodes on a hillside and see if they make it. 
And if they don't within 48 hours, 72 hours a week, it's gone, you know, and that's why Netflix in particular is like very, uh, has developed a reputation for canceling things within two seasons. They really want everything to be, uh, or they seem to want everything to uh, be watched right away, right to the end. They want you, they actually want you to binge the content like that for them is the highest metric of success and they want you to watch nothing else what is in common between the two sort of traditional broadcast model and traditional hollywood studio model and the streaming models that they want your attention and they want you to pay attention to very little else and they each have different ways of achieving that and financing it and so what we've noticed though, in terms of creative production with streamers is that they adopt this kind of principle of least interest or sort of bare bones, lean startup, what have you ethos to creating things. So as cheap as possible, as fast as possible. And as any good creative would tell you, you can have it fast, good or cheap pick too. And and that's um, that's how uh, that's how things have have worked. Um, except now we're getting, you know, fast and cheap. <laughs> right. And I and also like, what does that do to the actual creator, the writer, the, the someone who's trying to succeed in this new context where they know that there is an algorithm somewhere that's telling people, that's telling the studios or the streamers, this is what's popular instantaneously. And we're not going to give this show a chance. Like, you know, you remember, I think you wrote about this too, the days where a TV show, you know, maybe it wasn't doing well in the first couple months and then it sort of picks up and then it gets a fan base. And then so they finally renew it because it, you know, it got, it got better over time and that just doesn't happen anymore. True. Um, and so what does this do to, from the creator standpoint? Well, for one, one of the things that uh, the Writers Guild is striking about uh, is the presence of these sort of mini rooms where uh, very tiny writers rooms sketch out an entire series or an entire limited series. So like six or eight episodes and it might never make it to air. So all the work that they put in never sees the light of day. So the things that they would have built their reputation on or the, the ways that they would have made further connections and crucially the ways that they would have watched something being filmed so that they could improve their craft and get feedback, that's gone. And increasingly the, the mechanisms within creative production in this style means that writers aren't improving their craft, they're not developing relationships, and they aren't becoming showrunners. Uh, Javier Griot-Marxvaz talked to me about this in terms of it being an R&D problem, that artists are developed in the same way that technology is developed or that, or that developers develop, that they hone their craft over time. And the journey from you know an assistant to a showrunner is a proven track of success. That was Vince Gilligan. That was mm. um, that was a bunch of other uh, writers who came up sort of through the system or came up and developed their skills slowly but steadily, and were able to learn from their teammates in the same way that anybody in any kind of workshop would learn from their teammates. And now that isn't happening. Well, now yeah, it seems like it's a much 
lonelier endeavor. Yes. And that you have to be, right, if you're uh, Vince Gilligan, who's uh, known for Breaking Bad and many other uh, wonderful shows. But if you're a Vince Gilligan or someone like that, or Shonda Rhimes, right, you have to just, you have to hit it the first time, hit it on your own. And if you don't, then uh, it's unlikely you're going to get many other chances. Yeah, it's a real um, zero-sum game, I guess, is the way that I would describe it. It's yeah. a real harsh uh, it's a much harsher environment where the capacity to learn from failure is not there any longer. So you point out that a lot of these disruptions have led artists and creators to seek out platforms like Patreon and Twitch and TikTok, where they have more freedom to create and earn money and build an audience. But depending on those platforms to make art and a living also has its own limitations, right? Yes. Can you talk about some of those? Well, I think that um, similarly, they are similarly lonely, if not more so, uh, at least in a writer's room, you are in theory sort of on a team with other people, even though you may never see them again. Um, when it's just you and your audience, there's you and your audience and there's nothing else. And there isn't uh, crucially mentorship in the same way. Um, when we see a lot of scandals at that level, sort of, whether it's Twitch streamers or whether it's on Instagram threads, whatever, whatever the platform du jour is, there's always this moment where you sort of wonder, like, did no one tell you that this might happen? Did you not understand <laughs> what the stakes were? Did no one explain this to you? And in fact, no one did. Because right. there isn't that level of mentorship. There isn't that level of coaching and development. And uh, and instruction and and camaraderie. There's camaraderie at different levels. I'm not trying to say that it's you know the most lonely thing ever, but we are increasingly seeing sort of an entertainment model of like isolated creators for isolated audiences, and that's feeding a, what I would call like a broader societal pervasive sense of isolation, loneliness, and and alienation. Yes, and, and just. Also, from a financial perspective of these creators who are trying to make money, they're mm -hmm. also at the mercy of a lot of these platforms who can change an algorithm yep. or, or you know, censor at will or do whatever they'd like mm -hmm. um, and at a moment's notice. And then suddenly you have no platform anymore and no way to make a living and you're sort of starting from scratch. You are. And you also, unlike someone like in the WGA or SAG-AFTRA, uh, you have no collective bargaining agreement. You don't have uh, right. any previous relationship with that. You can't, you know, bargain with other people. You don't have allies in the same way. So the other big consequence of all this unbundling and fragmentation, and, and you touched on this a bit, is how personalized and individualized entertainment has become. Mm -hmm. And this, from the audience perspective, right, got infinite choices. We all have our own screens. Mm -hmm. Algorithms feed us recommendations based on our consumption habits. And it seems like artificial intelligence is set to supercharge this trend. Mm -hmm. um, what does a future filled with AI-generated entertainment look like to you? <laughs> uh, wow. Um, so one of the things about me is that um, I'm a science fiction writer and a consulting futurist. So I write science fiction novels about robots who eat each other and, in fact, company towns and, uh, and some other things that are coming out later. But um, I also do cons foresight consulting. And one of the things that I do is uh, I end up writing sort of short stories set in certain worlds that are framed out by the research. Um, so I did a little bit of that in this piece where I talked about what would it be like if you were the one creating something from, you know, this 
you know, a likeness stable online? What would it be like if you were dictating all these terms and then it sort of got generated and spawned for you? Where would that go? Do you get to be famous that way? Do you get paid that way? Do girls like it when you do that? <laughs> um, like stuff like that. Um, you know, what is it that draws people to do this? Does it create an audience? Do, are you creating a relationship? Are you communicating something that is true or real or experienced? I think in the future wherein all of that is possible, we can design a lot of different things, but if everybody is doing it, the likelihood that what you create will penetrate and gather an audience in an even more saturated and even more fractured environment is very low. You might have done it, but you may effectively just be hanging a drawing on your fridge. It might be an incredibly sophisticated drawing. It might be genius. It might be, you might have somehow spawned the birth of a new digital species in creating it, which would be great until the moment you prune it. And then effectively, you know, this little, Octopus got their arms cut off because dad didn't like the picture on the fridge. And, and so <laughs> that's what I think is one of the consequences. And there's other consequences too. I mean, like we know that AI sort of reifies bias. We know that it um, can reproduce, ex you know, it follows the garbage in garbage out model of traditional software development. It can reify and repeat and, uh, and layer over and amplify existing you know, biases, existing oppression, existing problems. And so if you say like, I have leased the or rented the likeness of Pam Greer to make, you know, a 70s style black exploitation film. And I want to talk about this, this and this, the likelihood that she might come out not as she is and not and not be what we would consider a great representation is much higher. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events.
so much of the focus so far in AI, partly because so much of this is new um, and around the writer strike and actor strike is, okay, AI is, you know, generating scripts, premises for uh, entertainment, and we're worried about sort of uh, actors having digital replicas that uh, either they don't sign off on or they are not well compensated for. But even beyond that, it does go to this this point you make about this hyper individualized entertainment, right? Where mm-hmm. so I think you like if you're your own George Lucas now, right? And you can take your favorite movie and change it so that uh, the actors do different stuff and maybe you're in it. And th- so you can have a good time all by yourself mm-hmm. trying to make, make this art. Yeah. But suddenly yeah. the idea of art and entertainment as a shared experience or something that can sort of elevate a conversation sort of goes out the window. Yes, like so many other things. It's better with somebody else. And, right. uh, and I think that that's sort of where we're going with this is that, okay, you can create these things. Will you be able to find an audience? And if not, then, you know, where is this going? And in so doing, are you maybe cutting a lot of people out of out of jobs and out of a national or an international conversation about that usually takes place in art, uh, whether, you know, where we determine what good and evil are, where we determine mm. what right and wrong is. You know, when those are isolated, we aren't actually having a a collective conversation about values, about history, about the future, about romance, about sex, anything. Right. And so you we lose out on that. You know, when you aren't sharing those things with other people, you might be the AI version of Emily Dickinson. You might be that person who has like a ton of of you know, great material just hiding somewhere on your hard drive, but it will be very lonely. Mm. One thing I've been thinking a lot about is the role that we play in all of this, audiences and consumers, mm-hmm. right? Because one argument you hear from the the studios and the streamers and the platforms is basically, hey, you know, we are just giving people the the content that they want. They are voting with their clicks and their streams and their downloads. What do you think about that? I mean, yeah, I, I think that uh, we do we do vote with our clicks and streams and downloads, but also we are on platforms that optimize that behavior, and they could optimize mm. different behaviors. That would be easy yeah. for them to do. It's sort of like blaming people for for taking the roads that have been paved for them, like. Yeah. You know, well, it reminds me of this. It reminds me of social media all over again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it it is that it op- it operates on the same logic. It it uses the same sort of metrics of success, and it it sort of optimizes the same emotional reactions in people. Right? You know, it wants to make you yes. angry. It wants to make you sad. It wants to make you aroused. It wants to make you engage. And those things, you know, that sort of addictive model can be applied elsewhere and it'll get applied to AI as well. Once we know what face shape, eye color, whatever it is, story beats, sound things, you know, this is happening at the level of like Spotify, AI generated music Mm. and sort of that, the, the, the music that is generated by looking at metrics of what, what succeeds that is already happening. And so it'll be, like that and that's why you'll occasionally see things on streaming networks that really feel as though they were not pitched so much as like 
plucked out of a hat where it's just a bunch of tropes and we threw some actors in because they're successful and we thought that that would work mm. and in fact it might have worked if the person writing it had been given another pass yeah and it, it becomes for audiences it's all about the dopamine hit because the <laughs> dopamine hit is can be profitable for these platforms and it's not profitable for the creators i mean you just mentioned the about music too right mm -hmm, like we're starting mm -hmm. to see the ai generated yep. songs that are sampling you know, real artists go viral and it's like funny because it's like, oh, it's a viral TikTok now. But down the road, if that's happening all the time and artists are already getting like a couple pennies on the dollar for their streams on Spotify, you mentioned you mentioned in your piece, Taylor Swift, right? She's making mm -hmm. like a couple billion dollars from the tour, but she's still making a couple pennies per yep. song on streams yep. for Spotify. I, not that I know so. the terms of her agreement. Let's, uh, I, I don't <laughs> know what the specific terms of, of her. I try. I reached out to some people. I, to be fair, I did not reach yeah. out to her, but uh, but um, so I can't speak to her agreement specifically. But that is those are the stakes. It's are you uh, when everyone is making that those fractions of a penny per per anything, and that's even within the legal realm of of stuff, and that's with residuals. That's with residual agreements. You know, one of the things that's happening during the SAG strike and during the WGA strike is that we're seeing royalty statements from people being posted online and they're, you know, I I yeah. can finally afford that cup of coffee I've always wanted. Great. You know, for a, for right. hugely successful titles. So one of the things that really has has been worrying me especially since the strikes have started, like so we've already seen a glut of uh reboots and sequels, right? That we're already headed mm -hmm. that way. Old shows like, you know, The Office are streamed more than most new series. There's about to be a ton of new reality TV and game shows because of the strike, which we know audiences like, right? The audiences for television and movies that win Emmys and Oscars keep getting smaller. And all of it makes me wonder and worry if it's going to be easier and more profitable to just feed people cheap, low-quality crap, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think one, that's always been true. It has always been, you know, the even, you know, studio heads from the 30s would tell you that too. Irving Thalberg would have told you that the man for whom the, Thor the Thalberg Award is named for producers would tell you that, you know, that's also the secret behind a lot of the success of like horror films. Horror films are always traditionally profitable and very successful because they cost less to make. They engage audiences in a great way and they uh, and they can make back their budget and above. Uh, and that's consistently been the story with that with those genres of films. The same with like certain romances, the same with like a lot of different genres. They can they can make it all back. Spending a lot of money on your on your production isn't necessarily always the path to success. Um, three spending three hundred million dollars on, you know, for example, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny is not necessarily the way to make it all back. However, the way that we learn to consume art, the thing that troubles me about this, like I'm very troubled by a lot of people losing their jobs. I'm troubled mm. about the idea of the bottom falling out. I'm worried about unemployed people. I'm worried about the loss of collective power. What I'm also really worried about is one, if all of this gets automated, then it's much easier to be vulnerable to an influence campaign that way once it's all automated. And two, when we lose out on that collective storytelling, we lose out on a collective conversation in the way that 
art positions it. One thing that I know from my other work is that it is much harder to get people to read information in a report and much easier to engage them at the level of fiction. I can tell you what the new projected rainfalls of the city of New York are going to be in a few decades, or I could show you in fiction what it's going to look like when, you know, some of these things are underwater. Mm. One of them is more powerful than the other. And when we lose out on the capacity to share in that storytelling and share in that um, in art together, we lose out on our ability to have those conversations and talk about uh, our shared values or lack thereof uh, and what right and wrong is, what good and evil is, the stuff of fiction, sometimes the stuff of melodrama, but the way in which we have those conversations is often started in fiction. And crucially, it often represents people or gives them a vision of themselves that they might not have had growing up at home. It might mm. offer them a, a way out or a way to identify or a way to, to think of themselves that they may never have been offered before. And that's where a community gets built. And so when we lose out on that, when it's, mostly just sort of like the entertainment equivalent of like pink slime or whatever, when that's what is out there, you are going to get, you know, we had a game show president mm. and you're going to yeah. get more of them. If that's all that's on TV, you're going to get, yeah. you're going to get more of it and you're going to get people who live by game show rules, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to be the hunger games all the time. It's going to be a zero-sum yeah. game, even more so than it already is. When man get hurt, very funny, is it, then it's going to be really funny to hurt people. Yeah. And then, and then, of course, when you combine that with the other trend that we've talked about, which is just we're already having an issue with loneliness and isolation and social isolation that has been exacerbated by the internet, social media, than the pandemic, and it has clearly influenced our politics. Mm -hmm. It is one of the reasons we are divided and angry all the time. And when everyone is watching their own AI-tailored entertainment and not talking and debating about some shared cultural experience, then it doesn't seem like the, the future is, is too bright. And it doesn't seem like democracy is all that possible since democracy depends on this level of empathy that we have with one another. And that empathy often comes from art. Uh, yeah, the, the story that I, that there were, I tried to write this piece a bunch of different ways before I finally settled down on it. Um, and... <laughs> One of the ways that it originally began that I had to scrap because it was extremely esoteric, but which I can share with you now. Um, Please, yes. Is that it is not an accident that Pericles made the theaters free in Athens. Hmm. That's not an accident. Like part of his job as a strategist was to make them ready for war. One of the ways he thought was best to do that was to increase sort of the social bonding within the population. So he signed into, you know, development, a bunch of different theaters, a bunch of different uh, music halls, a bunch of different uh, venues, entertainment venues. He essentially built uh, what 
we now understand to be some of the first odions. That's where the word odion comes from. Um, mm. And when we say cineplex odion, we're actually using an ancient Greek term for an entertainment hall. And he built a lot of these to create a sense of social cohesion within the Athenian population because he believed them to be under threat. And one of the, the ways that he made sure that people were engaging culturally was to lower the, the bar for entry to entering the theater so that everybody could consume comedy and drama and everybody could be having that conversation together. So if they had figured that out yeah. that long ago, prior to the Peloponnesian War, if that was the understood thing, if that was if that was the wisdom at the time, what does it mean that we might all be watching wildly different things that are only tailored to us? Isn't that a way of losing the experience of friction? One of the things that came up in the pandemic, and I don't wanna say came up in the pandemic because that implies a past tense, we're in an inter-pandemic period, if anything. One of the things that came up during lockdown, I would say, is that suddenly we discovered that a lot of our friends and neighbors had not really experienced this kind of friction. They hadn't had to listen to somebody else's story. And then suddenly hearing somebody else's story about why masks were important was just too much. They'd never heard somebody else's story about why you might be working in a meatpacking plant or why you might be immunocompromised or what the experience of illness might be like or why... Uh, why it's not safe to work retail in certain environments. And that lack of friction, that frictionlessness, that seamlessness, that, you know, that sudden ease, the experience of ease without consideration is what is offered by that particular future. And it means that the experiences of what in fiction we would call try, fail, try, succeed, the literal character builders in fiction aren't there. And so our own development process gets sort of shortchanged. So, you know, the the title of your piece, which was about humans being in the in the in the driver's seat here. Mm -hmm. um, do you, how, how do you think we can avoid some of these the, the worst outcomes or, or this kind of uh, dystopian future that you and I have been talking about? Well, for one, I mean, I think that there's there's a few different things. Like one, you can support strikes as they are. There's a lot of ways to support those striking writers. Two, you can stop denigrating the humanities all the time. Mm. It's right there in the title. They call it the humanities because that's what it does. It improves you as a human being. It's where you talk about what it means to be a human being. So you can stop like not funding the humanities within educational systems. And you can stop sort of bagging on people who, who have those degrees. If people want to talk about what it means to be a human being, then great, good for them. You can fund arts. You can demand that your, even your local city councilors start giving out arts grants. You can make sure that the NEA or whatever your local uh, or your ever, whatever your national granting body for artists is, has the money to do it. And you can vote for people who support the arts. When they do that, they are, I live in Canada. And one of the things that uh, really surprised me when I moved here uh, years ago was one, how Canada tried very hard to support its artists. And two, the reasoning behind it was to create a national media and a national literature and to not necessarily create a national voice, but to create sort of pride within it. I was really suspicious of that 
when I first moved here. But I also mm -hmm. understood that one of the things that they were allegedly trying to do was create a thing that people could be proud of that would create a national conversation. So whether that's a news network or whether that's films that are made for our networks or whether that's showing things in languages that are never going to be seen anywhere else, right? Um, whether that's, you know, that's granting funds for Inuk films, which is a language that people here speak. You know, mm. when that happens, you're creating a conversation about who you are and what you believe. And for all its faults, and there were many and are many, the way that the Hollywood studio system used to work did that. There's a reason that the USO went everywhere. There's a reason that people were attracted by the vision of America that they had on film and TV. Sometimes those visions were false. Sometimes that was a bait and switch. Right. But it also worked in the national interest. And, you know, it's, it's telling to me that, like, for example, the Pentagon recently announced that they would no longer be offering technical consultation support to filmmakers who censored their films in China or in the Chinese market. Right. They just straight up said, nope, we're not going to do that anymore. And you don't get to, you know, you, you will not get our assistance with these projects if you do that. And those fights are coming more to the fore, I would say. And it is about who gets to tell their story, who gets right. to be heard, and who gets to be a human being. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. I mean, we have talked so much on this show about the way our extremely online era has done similar things to politics, to the media, to our own brains. And it's fascinating to take a look at what it's doing to entertainment and how important that is in this larger role of um, uh, trying to sort of uh, rebuild uh, a sense of community and social cohesion that we seem to have uh, be losing every day as everything splinters and, and fragments um, because of some of these technological advances. So um, your piece did that in such a, a smart and compelling way. So thank you for writing it. And thank you so much for uh, for joining Offline. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for, for the invitation. Thank you for, for having me. I really appreciate it. Donald Trump can't leave the courtroom, so just to rub it in a little, Pod Save America is going on tour. He's probably asleep right now, but if he were conscious, he'd be so, so jealous. The Democracy or Else tour begins in Brooklyn on June 26th, followed by Boston on June 28th. Then we go to Madison, Phoenix, Ann Arbor, and Philly. See all the tour dates and get your tickets now at crooked.com slash events. All right, people, we all know the stakes of the 2024 election are high, whether it's keeping the Senate, taking back the House, or stopping Republicans at the state level. If you're ready to make a real difference, sign up for Vote Save America's 2024 volunteer program. And just to make it interesting, we're pitting you against each other. Vote Save America will sort you onto a team east or west, and you'll compete with a community of other volunteers to maximize your impact on the ground with opportunities tailored to you and the causes you care about. The team with the highest volunteering staff could secure the biggest prize of all, the continuation of American democracy. Head to votesaveamerica.com slash 2024 now and get ready to organize or else. This message has been paid for by Vote Save America. You can learn more at votesaveamerica.com and this ad has not been authorized by any candidate or candidates committee. 
Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. All right, uh, we're back. Max, what's going on? Hey, pal. So I wanted to start with uh, what I think is an example of what Madeline referenced in her piece mm-hmm. as um, the enshittification <laughs> of entertainment. <laughs> I know that wasn't her phrase. It was borrowed from someone else, but she uh, thought about it because it was a word. piece. So we learned this week that Netflix is dropping its most basic ad-free plan mm-hmm. that was nine ninety nine. For new or rejoining members, mm. if you already have that basic plan and you like your plan, you can keep you it. You can keep it. I've <laughs> heard that one before. <laughs> I think the promise is worth about the same thing this time. <laughs> Ted Sarandos just taking a page. Um, so you this... do sign up for Netflix via healthcare.gov now. <laughs> yeah, more problems. Um, so this is after Netflix cracked down on password sharing mm-hmm. um, and all as they try to cut $300 million this year. Wow. The first ad-free tier is now $15 a month. Um, 15? Yeah. Man. So if you want that, and that's the, and then the premium one I think is a couple of dollars more than that. And the $15 per month is for one member. Mm-hmm. And then if you want to add other members, I think it's another $8 for each additional member. Despite all this, or maybe because of it, the company just reported adding 6 million subscribers last quarter. Wow. So it was robust subscriber growth. Okay. Um, I wonder what they're joining for. And that came after the first ever decline in subscribers that they had the quarter before that. So here's the question. Are the... And you heard the... And then then I just had this whole conversation with Madeline. Mm -hmm. Are the streamers on a slow decline? Or do you think it's possible for them to figure out a way to hang on or restructure... And can you imagine a scenario where that results in a better product for consumers? So, I mean, this is obviously the like big economic change that we've talked about so much on the show where the venture capital that has subsidized these services for so long is disappearing because of rising interest rates. So now they have to like make money on the merits. And that is definitely going to lead to a different service. The whole thing really reminds me actually being in journalism in the late 2000s, early 2010s when everybody started instituting paywalls, again, because of economic changes, like need a new business model, and did a lot of experimenting with like, what do we put behind the paywall? Like, is it opinion pieces? Is it news? Do you hit it immediately? Is it after three or four articles? And it took a lot of experimentation to find what worked. And that even though no one said, let's change the journalism to fit the paywall, inevitably, those incentives change the kind of work that you do. And I I don't think we know what changes it's going to lead to yet in entertainment, although I have some guesses. But I do think think that the shift to higher prices for subscriptions and more restrictions on it is necessarily going to lead to different kinds of content from the entertainment industry, much as it did from journalism. What are uh, what are some of your guesses? I think the result is actually going to be similar to what we had in journalism, which is the word that everybody uses now, like in the Times and every place else, is essential, mm. is that you have to get people to hit the paywall in three or four stories that are capital E essential. They absolutely have to read because it's getting a lot of discussion, because it's like a major investigation that you can't read the aggregated version of. You have to read the real thing. And I think the entertainment version 
of essential is going to be hot button social issues like mm. squid games where it's like what does this mean for capitalism everybody is talking about squid games i have to watch it or like um tiger king mm. which is also big netflix like you remember the like reality show that came out in the pandemic right. about like weird we forget? yeah it's in our faces <laughs> a lot and i think that that is going to barbie Barbie, absolutely, absolutely. Barbie is essential. I will be seeing it in theaters because I support cinemas. <laughs> but I think that the like the which you already feel, you already feel the streamers trying to like create cultural moments, create things that are like water cooler shows that everybody is talking about. And how do you do that by hitting on sensitive social issues or by having outrageous characters? And there's a like Tiger King reality show version of that where we're just like more garbage, more like who are the worst people in the world and we can see them at their worst moments and laugh at them, which is like, I don't feel great about. Or the good version of it is like Squid Games where you're empowering creators. And I know you and Madeline talked about this, creators who have like things to say about our world that feel like I have to see what this creator is saying about capitalism in this weird Korean show. So yes, I agree with that. And I think that the that creating content that's essential is going to be a key part of this. Mm. On the other end of this, I'm a little concerned, and I spoke to Madeline about this, but a little concerned that we're also going to get a lot of empty calorie content. Absolutely. Uh, much like a lot of the content that's propping up journalism and has for the last yeah, <laughs> 10 years, yeah, right? Like, that's true. You yeah. know, uh, I think Pfeiffer said this uh, a couple months ago that the New York Times is like, like really fantastic journalism that is paid for by uh, crossword puzzles and, <laughs> um, you know, cook, like recipes and all you that know, other kind of... I actually love that, though. I know I have some friends in journalism who are discouraged by that. And if like if that becomes our value proposition games, that's going to be unhealthy. But, you know, it's not so dissimilar from the like old bundle back in the days where you like get subscriptions by giving people their Garfield. Yeah, that's... And I, th- I also think the other two challenges that streamers are facing and have faced in addition to rising interest rates is they're caught between these two models or, or the entire entertainment industry is caught between these two models, which is the pay for cable TV, uh, which has been on the decline for a while and then sort of building streaming services for the new era, right? Like Disney had ABC and Disney TV and then they did Disney plus. Right. And I think the pay for model mm-hmm is dying faster than anyone yeah. expected. Right. And it's costing so much more money mm-hmm. to build successful streaming services because now you have to keep the subscription. There's a lot of churn. That's oh, true. And so yeah. people will sign up and then they drop it. And so to keep subscribers, it's costing more. Right. And one of the ways to keep subscribers, I think, is having essential shows right. like you're talking about, right? Mm-hmm. Because then someone, sub- I, th- I think I saw somewhere that if you, the people who sign up for like HBO or Max now uh, because of succession, mm-hmm. those people are likely to stick around more because they really right. want to see those television right. shows. Right. And Netflix, I think, is just, Netflix had a first mover advantage in this space mm-hmm. because they bought up a whole bunch of libraries. And so, like, what was the biggest streaming thing on Netflix for a very long time? Just reruns of The Office. Yeah. And I do wonder if, especially with the strike now, and a lot of the plans now are to like flood the market with reality television and game shows because can't produce anything else with everyone on strike. Right. And those are cheaper to film. And unfortunately, I think a lot of people like that shit in America. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I just wonder if we're like headed into this sort of two tier system where we have 
some essential shows mm-hmm. that people are paying for that get a lot of awards that get a lot of buzz and discussion in our circles mm-hmm. <laughs> the liberal elite right uh and then there's well, those just people pay and those people will pay yeah and then there's a, just a ton of other garbage to wade through that is uh, getting just a, a much bigger audience than anyone would expect or hope right and part of the lesson from journalism is that there's a gradual consolidation where people won't, even if people value 30 different outlets, they won't subscribe to 30 different outlets. And like, I, like a lot of people have been really paring down my TV subscriptions. And if people naturally end up converging on two or three subscriptions, if it's, you know, you have to have Max and Netflix, or you have to have Max and Prime, but that's all you're going to have, then that's good for those services, much as it was good for the times that everybody was like, well, if I'm going to have one new subscription, that will be the one. But it's not good for the industry overall to have effectively a monopoly. And even people in the times, I think, know that and are aware that like, this is actually not great for the future of our industry that we're capturing like all of the new subscribers who have one subscription. I also think that uh, infinite choice has become absolutely a real problem, right? And just just a glut of choices right. and content out there. And I think that was has been a challenge for journalism as well, partly because you know social media, you're scrolling through and there's like a million stories and you've got fifty tabs open, right? And it's hard to figure that out, and that's that's tough business wise as well. And I think content wise. Like, I know that when, before HBO went full max, mm-hmm. like, I'd much rather go to the HBO app and say, okay, there's only a f- couple choices of new shows, and I want to watch. When you go to Netflix, it's so and it's garbage. like, what the fuck? There's just so much shit. Yeah. And you might have even heard about something great on Netflix, and you can't even find it. Mm-hmm. I don't think the algorithm is that great. Yeah. I uh, have to use a third-party website to find good things to watch on the streaming apps because it is, is so hard to it's uh i use a um, letterbox but they actually subscribe to i won't try to pull it up a different service that okay. will but if you that's access, what i'm looking for i go to rotten tomatoes sometimes okay okay <laughs> it's like, what's new this week what's fresh <laughs> if you go to letterbox and sort streaming services on there it will sort them um from the most popular on Letterboxd to the least popular. And that's a good shorthand for like, what are the best movies on any given service, which is not what the services themselves will show you. Although I do think Max is pretty good at this and they give you the feeling of like a curated experience, which again is something that the Times I think landed on is that like, we are gonna give you this feeling that like we've curated it for you. Here's the best thing. Here's what you should look at. Whereas Netflix really feels like it's like, do you wanna watch Skyfall? Do you wanna watch Mr. Impossible 1? Like what are, what are the movies that we can like shove in front of your face that we'll get you to watch? And I do think curation and a curated experience is something that people will pay for. I agree, yeah. yeah. Uh, speaking of journalism, uh, artificial intelligence coming for that too. Uh, <laughs> great. Should, yeah. should go great. <laughs> yeah. OpenAI, uh, the company that runs ChatGPT, just cut a two-year $5 million deal with the American Journalism Project to help fund efforts by local outlets to experiment with artificial intelligence technology. This is from Axios. The head of the AJP, the American Journalism Project, gave examples of what this might look like. Newsrooms being able to sort through complex FOIA data faster, uh, freedom of information requests, and and this one, product teams personalizing products for consumers. So 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 selling ads better? (laughs) Is that, I guess? I mean, the white whale forever has been a personalized 
homepage on your favorite news service that will show you the stories that you want to see, which I never actually understood the obsession with this in newsrooms because they don't produce that many stories that it's that hard to find what you want to look at. But there's been a belief for a long time that if we could just get the personalized homepage, that will be amazing for some reason. I think that sucks. (laughs) Just (laughs) if part of the problem with politics today i think is that we are all yeah, getting fed right. only what we want to see right by and, by the machines yeah, yeah and right. you know obviously we're not going to go back to the uh, print newspaper days but the nice thing about reading a newspaper is you read what you wanted to read but you also perused other headlines that opened up a world to something that you may not be interested in but then you may be interested in after you read it or something that you're not interested in but is it essential for you to know right and if everything is personalized and we're only getting what we want, I don't know if that's that great. And it's not necessarily what we want that is best for us, but rather what's <laughs> the thing that is going to be like most glue our eyeballs. And like As we what have it, learned right, here on not, this podcast. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it is another example of the like death of gatekeepers and the death of institutions as mediators, which it it feels dystopian to describe like, oh, there's people deciding what news you should read. But I think that there is value and we have seen that value in what we have felt when it has gone away and having people who are thinking about like what's healthy for us to consume. But there are a few different ways that AI is like, it's been a big week yeah. for like AI in the news industry. Well, uh, speaking of gatekeepers, uh, <laughs> New York Times reports that Google is testing and pitching to the New York Times, among yeah, others, yeah. Uh, a product with the code name Genesis. They- <laughs> Guys. <laughs> I know. It's just on the nose. Have you ever uh, seen Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock? <laughs> so the, uses- Genesis, this is their name for... I'm oh, sorry. This is, this is relevant, I promise. Genesis is the name of the, like machine they develop that is going to terraform hostile world to turn them into paradises. But immediately it's get, it gets captured by Khan, Ricardo Montalban from The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek II, okay. who realizes that it's actually a doomsday weapon. So it feels a little on the nose that oh, they are yeah. calling their I was thinking AI. like first book of the Bible, Genesis. There's also that. Yeah. I, <laughs> Star Trek is my Bible yeah, personally. Yeah, but <laughs> So Genesis uh, uses AI to produce new stories themselves. Its capabilities are described as being able to, quote, take in information and generate news content, with Google claiming it can serve as a kind of personal assistant for journalists, automating some tasks to free up time for others. The piece also notes that some executives at these uh, media outlets who saw Google's pitch described it as unsettling. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd say. I'd say I could see that where it's unsettling. I mean, so... I don't want to get into the habit of always starting from the premise that sure. all AI is bad. Right. Because I do think that's easy to go down that path. And I, I I could see some areas and instances where it has a positive impact. Mm-hmm. But this does seem eerily familiar to what we saw with the rise of social media and what it did to journalism. But what do you think, you, since you have written the book I, on this? I, I agree. It does feel that like we are going to replace journalism and like we're going to be so great at it. The thing that has been really striking to me about this is that I actually agree that AI could be useful for journalism. And you've talked about this, like AI's role in politics too, that like there are actually some good uses for it. But the uses that the companies are pitching is the most dystopian, terrifying possible use for it, which is like, just have the AI write the article and like do the reporting, which is a profound and also deeply insulting misunderstanding of how journalism works, which it's not surprising that Silicon Valley's view of journalism is that we're just like, 
monkeys who are typing up things that anybody could type up. And that's like really skips the value of journalism, which is narrative and framing and what facts are important and how should you think about this? And like, what do you what is all the information that we've gathered mean? And that is the human role in it. But I think there are potential uses for it. And you hear this a little bit from the like local newsroom deal. I think it could be really useful in gathering information. There have been times when I've been like reporting a story where you're trying to get like old documents about something a company was doing or digging through old four-year reports and having something like an AI that could go through all of that and process it for you and pull out useful bits that you could then, as the journalist, figure out what you want to do with that information. That's potentially really useful. But what the companies are pitching that like, what if you replace journalists with bots, I think is is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I do not think that's a good idea for a host of reasons. But yeah, I was trying to rack my brain for like useful mm-hmm. uh, purposes for this kind of AI. And like, look, we're we're both writers. You currently, me once upon a time. <laughs> and the the uh, scariest thing when you're a writer is uh, the blank page. That's true. Or yeah. uh, the, the blank screen. Yeah. And I think the first draft capability, we're just like, hey, give me a first draft AI. I'm going to, here's all mm. the stuff that I'm thinking about. Here's all my reporting. Here are all my notes. Right. Here are the stories that I'm covering today. And give me a first draft. And then you sit down and you're like, edit, 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 re- rewrite, do yeah. all that kind of stuff. And you and it makes sure that there is a, it is still human, right. <laughs> human generated content that is assisted by AI. I couldn't see that being useful. Yeah. And you've made this point about politics, Sue, that ultimately you want a human overseeing it. I do think that there is a way to incorporate this and especially a way to incorporate it that I, I don't think it would actually replace that many jobs. I mean, the examples you constantly hear people cite for what AI could do is it could do like financial reports and it could do sports scores. But those are really the only two things you could do with it. And the uh, Associated Press is actually already using bots to construct stories like that. But as a like scraper tool for gathering data, I think it's it's useful. Yeah. Potentially. And, you know, I think we made this point the first time we talked about AI. But um, again, in terms of jobs and skill sets mm. that are going to be valuable in the future creativity is going to be at the top of the list and because uh, and judgment yeah because ai at least nothing we've seen yet uh can re- it can't replace either of those things yeah and so if people who are creative people who have judgment people who have experience expertise like all of that is going to be very valuable in the future. But it is concerning how the companies designing the AI seem to not understand that and yeah. seem to really be leaning into the idea that we are going to replace the judgment parts of it and the creativity parts of it with yeah. the bots, which I think is simultaneously like overestimating the power of AI and also underestimating it. Well, and on that note, the um, we just learned today, we're recording this on Friday, that the uh, Biden administration had been meeting with um, some of the big tech companies mm-hmm. and some of the AI startups and to try to get like a series of voluntary guidelines in place. They have reached an agreement. Mm-hmm. And so basically all of these uh, companies have agreed to some kind of third party oversight uh, to make sure that the AI they put out mm-hmm. is safe. It can be trusted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I think the devil's in the details. We don't know what the third party would be. I don't think it's necessarily a government entity. There's still no legislation. We have seen the downsides of voluntary agreements before, but I don't know. It seems like a, a 
a decent step forward? It feels like everybody is approaching this, everybody in government, I mean, is approaching this with the attitude of, if we were going to rerun the social media era, knowing what we know now, what would we do differently? Right. And I think that- I, Yeah, you get that sense. Right. Is that like, we really wish that when Facebook and Twitter and YouTube had come about, we had gotten some like, even if it's just a- verbal on your honor agreement about vague principles, getting something from the companies before the technology is entrenched, before it is like built into our lives and is lucrative so the companies won't want to change things, some sort of dedication to like vague principles. And the ones here are very vague. It's like risks of to biosecurity and cybersecurity um, and watermarks to distinguish between real and AI generated images. Sure. Yeah. But it, it feels like it's just getting something down just to establish the premise that we should all be publicly agreeing to the kind of basic guardrails for humanity's well-being. Um, <laughs> that said, we did also learn from the social media era that like you can get agreements, you can have legislation, you can have laws on the books and the companies will still violate them willingly and at a huge scale if they think that there's money in it, which I'm sure people in the Biden administration know. Yeah. I'm sure they're aware of that. Yeah. But so it's it's something, but I don't think it's gonna fix anything. Yeah, they're pulling the levers they can at this at this exactly. stage. Exactly. Right. All right, finally. <laughs> We have chosen to talk about an online lefty discourse so divisive and acrimonious that it led to a New York Magazine piece <laughs> by Eric Levitz. A very long New York Magazine piece. 2,400 words. With the headline, Will There Be Bananas <laughs> Under Socialism? Uh, Max, I hold you responsible for bringing this to my attention, so please I'm explain. so sorry. Okay, so... Let me, I'll give you the like basic explanation and then I'll say like what the actual debate is. And then we can talk about like what this means about online discourse, which is nothing good because it is <laughs> spoiler fully, right, fully ridiculous. So a left wing writer named Malcolm Harris tweeted, I assume under the influence, which I support. That's, I say that with no judgment whatsoever. Kind of. No, I would rather know <laughs> that that be yeah, the case, right, that he would tweet under right, the right. influence. Yeah. He tweeted that, um, like, obviously, when we implement the full socialist revolution, the economic right models, the which, is, which is coming. That's right. Right around the corner. That's right. Yeah. Uh, brought to you by Twitter posters. <laughs> If they post hard enough, full communism, full global communism is is coming. As but the they, number of red roses go up, <laughs> chances of the socialist revolution do Just too. if you get enough likes yep, that, right. that comes about. That in global communism, obviously, bananas would not exist in the United States. Now, why would bananas not exist in the United States? It's not really clear because in the nature of Twitter, rather than explaining it, it was like, obviously, you fucking morons, you monsters. How could you think there would be bananas under communism, and this set off a still ongoing. I think it's because most of the bananas are produced by the global South, and in in global communism, there would be this sort of realigning where right. the global North um, would have to give up a lot, and the global South would would rise. So the I, that. <laughs> That's it's very it's very generous of you too. <laughs> there were like people got like days into the debates before people started reverse engineering that like, was what I had what, to do. what we were actually arguing about and tellingly people arrived at wildly different explanations where it's like it's north south equity it's like yeah no, that's the one climate that I change on. it's about labor rights um and I so it's like furious argument between people who were saying like Obviously, there could not be bananas in the world when we institute full communism. And then other people on the left saying we have to have bananas in order to bring about the communist revolution. And I think the actual, (laughs) 
the like lines of the debate here, I think, tell you a lot, which is there's this long running argument on the like online left between it's called degrowthers and pro-growthers. Mm. And the degrowthers are people who argue that primarily to combat climate change, but also because of other like economic issues, we have to forcibly restructure the global economy no longer towards economic growth, which it is structured towards, and to instead institute a controlled, deliberate reverse of economic growth, basically like global economic depression in order to save the climate and save the global economy. And then the pro-growthers are the ones who say, actually, we need to promise people like material wealth and material well-being if they are going to support the communist revolution. And I think what is... One of many ironies about this is that the importing of bananas from Latin America and Southeast Asia, United States, actually has nothing to do with any of these issues. Like as as a few ec economists like tried to point out to people, um, importing bananas is actually not that much of a climate impact because they are brought by boat and shipping food by boat is actually like pretty low carbon impact relative to other things. And also the entire debate seemed to assume that bananas are only produced in the global south to give like little snacks to people in America. <laughs> but actually it turns out, and nobody online was aware of this, people in the global south eat bananas too. In fact, they eat most of the bananas because they are also food. And it turns out that people in the global south also eat food, which no one in this debate seemed to accept as a premise. Not only do people in the global south, I can't believe I'm doing that. Not only do people in the global south eat bananas, yeah. they make money right. by exporting bananas and selling how, them. Right. That's how you buy things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's so, but it, <laughs> so, so Eric wrote this, this, this very dense piece, but the, I found it very useful. So I appreciate him doing so. <laughs> a couple of good parts from it. He said, it's difficult to have a coherent debate over this claim since we're essentially discussing an underspecified sci-fi scenario. Right. right. Uh, because... There's the, Harris is seemingly making assertions about how commodity fruit production would work in a global socialist state wherein the world economy is democratically <laughs> planned and presumably a global transfer system has radically reduced global inequalities of income, intellectual property and technology. And I do think that the, the point that he was making this whole thing is like this. None of this matters mm -hmm. because socialism in this kind of global economy only works if you have a globalist social revolution we're sure. not even talking about an american social revolution we're talking about getting all the countries right, around the right, world right, right. to have their own socialist revolution and then you can figure out how to divvy up all the bananas that are left but, again, and in that case americans who are just gobbling up all the bananas because we're so we're selfish capitalists and we're just eating too many bananas we would have fewer bananas and everyone else would have more bananas because certainly people aren't going to grow more bananas uh, in that scenario because you're not going to get as much money from the bananas because capitalism is gone. So I have more thoughts on the economic merits of this plan, <laughs> but I'm going to spare both you and the yeah, listeners no, of I this. Think because too it, much. Right, because it, the, the actual bananas issue is totally divorced from. So I think there are like a couple of things going on here that are related to like the internet and how it's distorting our brains. I think one is that there has been- Is that a lot of online socialists <laughs> desperately need to touch grass more than almost anyone else I know? That's number one for me. In fairness, not exclusive to online social. Everybody online needs to, it is a oh, universal sure. Although, and, and I will, this is my fault too. Right. When I, we started Crooked in 2016, 2017, I would frequently- uh, have fights with online leftists and it was the stupidest thing I've ever done and now I've muted them all in my life. Is and better. who needs to touch grass more than, frankly, you and me? That's These right. two guys That's right here at this so table. Yeah. I'm not throwing any stones here. <laughs> 
So there is this, I think there's like a couple of things here. One is that there is this like long tendencies among elements of the super online left to try to out cosplay global communist revolutionary at each other <laughs> online. And like who is going to cosplay like Leninism harder at each other is how you're going to like win being online. And I think it is like, it's both ridiculous because it leads to all of this, like, I am more of Leninist than now, but uh, like these completely made up hypothetical scenarios. But also if you talk to people who work at organizations like DSA, it like really derails their actual like in real life meetings because you get these people who like learn from Twitter what the left is and learn from Twitter what online organizing is. And they think that it means having these ridiculous hypothetical debates about who can do global communism the hardest on bananas this is my i mean this is my biggest pet peeve about politics and being online right is that when and i I probably said this a million times in a whole bunch of different pods so forgive me but like (laughs) if you meet actual real life organizers whether they are on whether they are dsa sure left Mm -hmm. center left Mm -hmm. center right crazy right Mm -hmm. all of them are more practical than any of the people in those categories who spend most of their time online, who Mm -hmm. have never knocked on a fucking door, picked up a phone to try to persuade someone because they don't think, because online, you don't, there is no need to persuade anyone. All there is, is a need to show how right you are and get all your friends to retweet how right you are. And everything is like my, it's all about identity in this way, which is like, my identity is this opinion that I have. Right. And that is more important than persuading anyone else. It's the only thing. That I am correct and that, and that I'm going to move them to a different place. And so I think a lot of the online lefty people who are mostly online really hurt the cause of the many DSA organizers that are out there in real life. Absolutely. Trying to knock on doors and, and, and win campaigns. Right. And that's why also why I think there's a gap between politicians on the left like an AOC or Bernie Sanders, who I think are quite successful and also quite pragmatic. Yeah, right. right. (laughs) By comparison to the people online that some that, you know, now think that they're all sellouts. Right. I think there's something else happening here, too, which is this like there's so many like to your point, like whatever different movement or cause you were involved in, there's always a sense online when you're post that like if you post hard enough about it, you will bring about (laughs) the revolution. And if you just if people who are not posting hard enough about it are counter revolutionaries because they are not posting hard enough. And I think that does come out of this like specific thing that like the Arab Spring era and like the green movement in Iran era, which is like really the formative moment for how we interact with Twitter specifically, but social media generally. And we all saw so many actual revolutions and actual mass protests that were playing out partially online because they were being live streamed. They were being like live posted from the protests. And I think we all got that sense because when you were online the same time, something like a mass protest, like Occupy Wall Street of the Arab Spring is happening, it feels like you're participating in it. And I think that people made the mistake that because it felt like posting was participating because there was a posting component to these actual on the ground revolutions that posting is revolution. And that I really think that people it, believe It's not it. just that, that people think posting is revolution. Mm-hmm. Not posting is it's either counter. you do not care right. or uh, it's counter to they it, right? Because then, then there's a lot it. of people yeah. now who are like, oh, so there's a, this big news event happened or this right. big injustice happened. Right. And this person who was prominent and not even like that prominent anymore, right, 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 somewhat right. prominent right. on up, has not said anything about it. And that person 
coward. <laughs> and there's it's just like and we've talked about this a lot too. Like politics has become a hobby. Yes, and, and it's it like, hobby, hobbyism is very intertwined with this. right. And it's like the like online takes posting. And I realize as a podcaster, like I'm really like <laughs> a little complicit in this. And I, I acknowledge that I get it. That like mashing the dopamine delivery system online starts to feel like revolution starts to feel like you're doing politics but it's not but like even if you were just a passive consumer of it it starts to look like that is what political activity is but it is just a complete just vacuum that sucks it up and absorbs all of this energy and activity and then it goes nowhere so the entire reason we did vote save america when we started crooked because i was like we cannot just be a progressive media company of posters yeah that's just not that's not going to do much right (laughs) it's going to have some effect right you can persuade people that's what we're trying to do but unless we like actually go do this in real life right it's going to be a problem which people definitely are forgetting more and more speaking of um touching grass <laughs> hold on pull this up here <laughs> just can't believe we're doing this i used to be an investigative reporter john <laughs> austin our feelers producer uh-huh. really wanted us to talk about cat turd unfortunately I, he's probably right cat turd uh who we all know of course <laughs> cat turd too thank you very cat much Give his full title he put is, some respect on i don't even name. know how to describe him he's like an elon fanboy has become a super poster. He's become a super poster. Right. He's a conservative. Right. Um, kind of a leader of the like pro-Elon right-wing Twitter. Yeah, like I think he sort of doesn't like Trump. He was like a DeSantis fan, but now he's sort of souring on DeSantis. I think he's a Trump guy. Is he a Trump guy now I think now he's a again? Trump guy, yeah. Okay, I don't I, know if it was DeSantis or Trump. He I, had strong I, feelings about one I of them. I scrolled through his feed and it was the post that we're going to talk about. Uh, about how he's going to vote Trump no matter no matter who it pisses off. Mm, so and also a lot of retweeting the fake AOC account, which of course has a blue check mark on it. And um, he has 1.8 million followers on Twitter. <laughs> That's his, his, again, his name is Cat Turd. <laughs> and he wrote this long post with way too many characters. He used up all the characters that his uh, blue check mark allow him. Is there uh, still a limit if you have a blue check? John, uh, tell us about blue check. Uh, well, I haven't gone past... <laughs> I haven't gone past the limit because no one needs to read that many words on Twitter. But his was very long about how he's exhausted mentally and physically. This cat turd thing has been a five-year roller coaster ride. (laughs) For all of us. For all of us. I don't even know how I got here. I often ask, why me? I don't know how I've gained such a large following. Sometimes I think it's mostly luck. And then he goes into his life and he's had this this difficult life and he's a lot of things he's dealt with and stuff like that. And I think there was some PTSD and he was in the military and blah, blah, blah. Anyway... And uh, and then at the end, he's basically like, hey, guys, I just I just want to thank you all for making this work and stuff like that. And <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. All these people mm-hmm. started replying to him. Mike Flynn, General Mike, crazy Mike Flynn, QAnon Mike Flynn. Right. He's like, Catterd, we got your back. Mm-hmm. Senator Mike Lee, Republican senator from Utah, is like, Catterd, yeah. you make every day better. <laughs> thank you for this. I don't fuck it. What? I, so I think that th- this is actually a reminder of something that we have known for a while, but have like struggled to confront head on because it's so weird and so crazy. But online super posters are increasingly cultural elites in the way that <laughs> seriously, in the way that like I know a major religious figure might have been 
in years past or like a major entertainment figure might have been. And like politicians need to court those cultural elites. But that is disturbing because now they are people not picked because they have a lot of influence in an actual community, but because they were selected by an algorithm or knew how to play into an algorithm that incentivizes outrage and shit posting. And that means that that's what our culture is selecting for and that's what our politics are selecting for. And by the way, these people are frequently, uh, it started with them being quoted in actual news stories. Like Twitter user X says this as yeah. if it like yeah. matters in some kind of big way. Sure. And uh, it's gone from that to like, like Catchard had a fucking profile of him. Did he really? Yeah, there was a profile. It <laughs> was a big profile of Catchard. That's where we are right now. Yeah, the glossy magazine covers for uh, he's the he's the I, cover boy for Vanity Fair. I can't I, I can't do anymore. I can't do anymore Catchard. Um, oh, that's all the time we have for today. <laughs> I want to thank Madeline Ashby, and I want to especially thank Catchard for always, just doing what he's doing. I want to thank the banana discourse, all the banana oh posters out there. Thank you for your service in the revolution. Guess what I had this morning. Did you have a banana? I did, yeah. You fucking neoliberal shell. (laughs) Well, that's very on brand for me. (laughs) Enjoyed every last bite. All right. Bye, everyone. Offline is a Crooked Media production. It's written and hosted by me, John Favreau. It's produced by Austin Fisher. Emma Illick-Frank is our associate producer. Andrew Chadwick is our sound editor. Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Fotopoulos sound engineered the show. Jordan Katz and Kenny Siegel take care of our music. Thanks to Michael Martinez, Ari Schwartz, Amelia Montooth, and Sandy Gerard for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn and Rachel Gajewski, who film and share our episodes as videos every week. All right, we got a new offline product, everyone. We have revealed our incredibly troubling screen time stats on the show, but we know we're not the only ones addicted to uh, giving Tim Cook money, so we made something just for you. Uh, The new offline phone case says, help, I'm scrolling, and I can't look up. And it's available now in the Crooked Store. You can pick one up for yourself, or you can give it to a friend who you want to shame. We have learned how powerful shame is here on offline. So get off your phone, but not before you go to crooked.com slash store to check these out. I'd say they are about a hundred times cooler than the uh, phone case with the clown on it that we used during the challenge. So pick one up. Should be fun. Crooked.com slash store.